Hey guys, this is Jeff Stanick with Figured Out Baseball. Got a really good Figured Out Baseball podcast today that's been a long time coming. Uh, we've got Nick Bredesen on the podcast with us today. He's an assistant coach at Ohio University, and Nick and I have been trying to work out a time to uh, to be in a podcast together for a while, but I've had a couple things come up, so glad we finally got him on here today. Uh, I'll give you a quick background on Coach Bredesen before we jump into questions with him. He is a Bloomfield Hills, Michigan native, played collegiately at Ohio University. He was there from 2014 until the spring of 2018. Uh, in August of 2018, he was hired as an assistant coach at Ohio, where he's been since. Uh, Ohio University is, by the way, a Division One school in the MAC conference. At Ohio, Coach Bredesen coaches catchers. He is also uh, also works with hitters. Uh, field maintenance camps, the short game with the team, uh, has his hands in quite a few areas. Uh, he graduated from Ohio University with a degree in sports and fitness administration and management, but also got his master's degree at Ohio University. Uh, in his his master's degree is in coaching education, and he got that in 2019. Uh, Nick, I appreciate you being on the podcast with us today. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Like you said, this has been a long time coming, and I've been looking forward to it for a while. So I usually like to start with something from the bio that stands out. And for you, um, honestly, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the your master's degree in coaching education. I, I told you right before we started recording that for whatever reason, I see uh, ads for Ohio University well, for the degree in coaching, uh, and it's something I've I've legitimately considered. It just I, I don't know what all it would entail, but I'm kind of curious to talk to you about it and just hear, you know, what what is a master's degree in coaching education? What sort of courses, classes are you taking? What are some some of the focuses, the things that you do there? I'm I'm interested in that part. Yeah, sure. So that program actually has a pretty decent pull throughout the throughout the country. Which, to be honest with you, I didn't really know. Um, I finished my undergrad in four years had my fifth year to play with and just kind of did the coaching masters because it was the thing to do um some players before me had did it just kind of did it as something as i thought that i had to do so i could keep playing um but once i got into it it was actually pretty cool and the coolest thing for me was obviously there were a couple of baseball guys in there but you know you had soccer coaches you had football coaches you had field hockey coaches you had hockey coaches um so hearing and comparing, you know, different terminologies or different practice plans or different practice designs and how they set things up and how they handle players and just the the, the daily ins and outs of their schedules for me was interesting to compare today. Like I said, I was still playing, so I was still trying to wrap my head around of what being a coach was. So to hear different perspectives, especially from different sports, was a super cool element for me that that program uh, provided. In terms of classes and and topics and things of that it was it didn't dive too deep into anything specific but what it did do is it gave you a little taste of kind of a lot of different topics throughout coaching right so you had a morals and ethics class you had a skill acquisition class you had a leadership management class um i'm blanking on what the other classes were but uh there was one where it was strictly how to plan a practice, right? And there was a injury management class. So, like I said, it didn't necessarily dive in too specifically to one area, but it gave a very broad overview of a lot of very relevant topics in the coaching world. Those seem like pretty interesting topics. So I spent one year as a high school coach after I left the college game. Uh, it took a couple years where I didn't coach at all, and then I was approached 
from uh, a local AD, and, and I took a job. When this website came out, I stopped. People have heard that before in this podcast, uh, I'm sure, at some point. But but when I did that, I was surprised that I had to take courses, um, coaching-type course. And they called them coaching courses, but to be honest, like they didn't have anything to do with, with any of that stuff that you said. There was nothing about leadership, nothing about injury prevention, nothing about uh, – Nothing about scheduling practices. It was like you you can't give Advil to your kids, so so don't try because you're gonna get fired type of stuff. Right. And um, like that was about as in depth as it went. And I was disappointed when I when I realized I had to take this. It was a fairly long course. It took a while to get through, but none of it applied to actual coaching. And I just thought at first I was like, oh, this is good. Maybe this like some of the assistants I'll have, they'll be able to figure some things out that are important to them and, and as they as I was going through this I was like this is total garbage like this this isn't helping anybody in any sport do anything so um, it's it's cool to hear that and that's um, something I guess that if you really if you know you want to coach when you're when you're done playing it seems like a pretty interesting course to get into at least to give you some some sort of fundamental building blocks yeah like I said it was something that I full transparency I kind of just stumbled into just because of where I was at and the situation that I was in, but once I got into it, I realized that this was actually going to be pretty beneficial. So another thing, Nick, that I'd like to discuss a little bit before we really get into maybe what the bulk of this podcast will be about, which will you know probably be catching defense, but I'd like to ask you a little bit about your playing career. I know that you missed a good bit of time in, in several different seasons due to injuries, and I'm just curious to know what your perspective is now that you've been coaching for several years. If you could go back and change anything, is there anything that you think that you could have done differently to stay on the field more? And I'll primarily ask you that question because if there's someone listening to this who is either coaching and can maybe help their players with something that you dealt with, or if there's a player listening to this who might be in a, in a similar situation or might experience something similar a few years down the road, um, just want to see if there's any anything any inside info you could give to help somebody else out. So you know, I don't know exactly what your injuries were, but just curious if there's something that you feel at this point you could have done differently, or or would have done differently to to have a, a more a healthier and a more full, more maybe complete playing career. Sure, and I mean, obviously, all of us looking back could say that you know I wish I you know went to the cage a little bit more, or spent more time in the weight room. I think every player would be lying to themselves if they say they didn't have some form of regret right in the pit of their stomach it says well you know what i probably could have done this and it probably would have helped um the biggest thing for me and this is something that i got advice from while i was hurt um from a from an older player actually a coach just and it was just what he said he said just because you're hurt doesn't mean you're out right so for me i really used that time and this is where i really decided that coaching was the avenue I wanted to go down but I mean you're sitting and for me I was sitting and watching the better half two seasons right so instead of sure I was there with the guys and involved in the dugout and energy and all that but I really tried to I mean I was next to the coaches the whole time I was picking their brains on you know pitch calling or understanding why we did this in a certain situation so for me and I'm only saying this because this is probably the best piece of advice ever given to me, but just because you're hurt doesn't mean you're out, right? So utilize that time as you would if you were playing in terms of the attention and effort you put into, obviously it's a different part of the game because you're not physically active, but there's still things to do and still things to learn. Um, Because for me, like I said, that's where I really fell in love with coaching was while I was still playing and while I was hurt. 
I spent so much time in the dugout and so much time just, you know, in-game conversation with coaches or with players um, where, my, where my wheels really started to turn. And I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to be okay when this playing thing's done because this coaching thing seems kind of fun. That was uh, one thing that I certainly experienced when I was done playing. Even when I was playing, kind of like you, I wasn't uh, – I had some injuries and just uh, kind of knew that coaching was something I wanted to get into. And the the ending of the playing career wasn't that big of a deal because I kind of knew that I was still going to be in baseball. And it, and it yeah. wasn't – it, I guess it made it a little easier. And it probably does for a lot of guys. Now, when you were hurt, Nick, especially toward the end of your career, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, your senior year was cut short due, due to an injury. Um at any point, either as an underclassman or as a senior, when when you got hurt, did you at any point just have trouble, um, just emotionally being there? You know, being being sort of a team guy, still being a good dugout presence. Did you have any any issue with that? And if so, was there some similar advice given from from a coach or a, a former coach or anybody else that helped you with that part? Obviously, what you just said, you started to to realize that I can still do some things. But did you at any point just? Like you got hurt, and at first we're like, "Oh my gosh!" Like again, I have got to do this again, and 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 sort of feel like, you know, you you kind of wanted to hang it up, or didn't necessarily even want to be want to be there because you didn't want to, uh, I guess, deal with all the stuff that comes from injury, not being able to play, all the time and effort you put into it. And now your 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 season's cut short. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it was an absolute emotional roller coaster um, with a bunch of highs and a bunch of lows. Um, Obviously, I leaned on my teammates and my coaches at the time to kind of keep me in the middle. But, yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I didn't have thoughts of hanging it up or, you know, I show up to the field and I'm like, man, this is the third month where I've really just sat here and watched practice. Like, I'm over this. Um, the hardest part for me was, let's see, coming off of our freshman year in 14, we had a pretty tough season. We won 11 games. Um, I had an awesome opportunity, and I caught – basically every single game that season um, because a couple of other upperclassmen got hurt. But like I said, we won 11 games. And physically, I was pretty destroyed um, just being a freshman and, and wearing all those innings behind the plate. And then in 2015, coming back, I spent a lot of time in the weight room getting stronger, getting back healthy. And then my first injury came up. I had two hip surgeries. Um, and that season, I had to I got to, but I also had to sit and watch our team have the biggest turnaround in NCAA Division One that year and go on a winning conference tournament for the first time in like 15, 20-some years and just got, got to, like I said, I got to watch the, have, have the team have success, but I also had to sit there and know that I wore the brunt of the growing pains while the team is out there thriving and succeeding. Um, and then in 16... My injuries were, I was good, I was healthy, and then right before the season started, I dislocated my shoulder. So that's when it really, really hit me where I'm like, God dang it, man. Like, this has been two years of just absolute hell, and I was finally ready to roll. I'd say that's when I, I really got, I don't want to say dark, but that's probably where it hit me the most. And then coming back in 2017, I was older, which I think helped a lot. I had a little bit more perspective. Uh, just from being out for so long and kind of, like I said, just using that time to to view things through different lenses and understand different perspectives. And I was an upperclassman at that point, so I still battled some injuries in 17, but I was able to be a part of um, another conference championship, 
conference championship team. Um, and then from there, at that point, I knew that my body was pretty much done. So I was like, you know what? You're probably going to play a little bit in 18, but if it doesn't work, it doesn't work and kind of come to came grips, grips with it that way. Now, did any of your injuries sort of shape how you wanted to be as a coach or, or anything that you do with your catchers in order to try to help them uh, stay healthy? Or do you, was most of most of what happened to you just sort of freak, uh, just, you know, unfortunate type things that, that have come up? Uh, I would say most of my injuries were either something that, you know, were biological with me or kind of a freak incident. Uh, but the one thing that I just had to put so much effort into as a player because of the surgeries was lower half mobility and especially hip mobility. Obviously, that plays a massive, massive role in the catching position. So I, I learned a lot about how, how to take care of myself and how to take care of my lower body when I played. So that's something that I try and instill and and pass along to our guys now because to me that's that's one of the biggest things behind the dish is our ability to, to squat and get different positions back there. What was it like for you, Nick, when you first transitioned into coaching? Um, you were coaching guys that you played with the previous season. How did that go? How did, did you feel like you had um, you had their ear and like and they and they were willing to listen to you, or was that sort of a difficult transition because? You know, the year before you were teammates with them. Yeah, you know, it was it was a fine line. I'm still I'm still battling it, right? Because there are I'm three years removed now, so there are still some guys that that I was in that locker room with. Um, I would say that as an upperclassman, I I had a voice on the team. I, I was kind of the vocal leader, so I had their ear as a player. That definitely extended into the coaching part. Um, but at the same time, I mean. Right? Like if I'm being honest, like if me and some of these guys, you know, we go out on a Saturday night, right? And we've seen each other and probably not the, the most appropriate headspace, right? So I think they know that about me. I know that about them. So there was that battle to fight with. But the one thing that I like about being a young coach is probably, I guess I would say my ability to maybe relate to the guys in ways that, and to no fault of their own, but that the other uh, other members of our coaching staff might not just because of the age gap, right? Whether it's even as something as simple as, you know, a small cultural reference, right? Of just something that's going on amongst our age group throughout the world that I can drop, you know, drop a joke or something and just get, get through to the player. Maybe, like I said, at a different level because of the age that I'm at, as opposed to the, our older coaches on staff. I always enjoyed just, you know, as a young coach, that same thing, um, being able to relate to the players in a different way. And I think the players appreciate that because I think the players look at each coach on the coaching staff a little bit differently, as a little bit of a different role. The head coach is usually usually the one that's that's maybe the least accessible, but it probably has to be that way as a, as a collegiate head coach. And it, it's like the, the other the, – the, the paid assistants are usually, usually again, uh, just – you know, generally speaking, are um, also like to keep some separation. Partly, I think, because of the recruiting part of it, and, and partly just because a lot of times they are they're older, they're in a different part of their life, 
And then, you know, in a, in a lot of situations, especially when the volunteers the, is the youngest, the volunteer is usually the one that, that does sort of have the most personal relationship with, with players. And, and I enjoyed that. And I'm sure, I think it's a healthy thing for staffs to have. But when you are the That's volunteer, fine. sometimes it's not always easy to, um, I guess to walk that line. Now, for you, Nick, did you have any advice there? Did you have any advice when you when you first started, just about, um, you know, just just how to form those relationships with players, but but try to separate yourself and not be looked at as a player and, and sort of have some authority as a coach? Did you have any conversation with either Coach Smith there or any other former coaches or anybody else that kind of gave you some some tips when you were first starting out? Uh, yeah, and, I mean, and a lot of that started um, still while I was playing, kind of as you alluded to. Uh, my senior season got cut short. So as soon as my, the last time I stepped off the field, like I, I knew it was my last game, and we still had about half the season left. Um, all of the coaches kind of took me under their wing, and, and it wasn't anything that we sat down and said, look, you need to act this, this, and this way. But just now looking back at it, the conversations that we had of, just certain situations of, you know, I, I would ask them, okay, how would you approach this? In this situation, how would you recommend that I approach this or this situation? Um, but all, and now looking back at it, I'm very grateful because they did it. They did it very organically and, and kind of let me learn as I went through the process, right? And then once I got into the official coaching role, and I'm very fortunate for this, and I owe Coach Smith a lot, um, but he basically, I mean, his only advice to me was, man, let it rip. <laughs> right? So, sure, I stumbled over myself a lot, right? Like, you know, I said the wrong thing at the wrong time multiple times, and I still do that daily. Um, but I think, at least for me, and this is what I, I'm sure other guys are different, but that's the best way that I learn is to just go out and do it and figure it out as I go. Um if I have questions, I'm not afraid to ask. And if I mess something up, the rest of the coaching staff wasn't afraid to tell me that I messed it up, right? So it's still an ongoing process to this day of me trying to figure out how to balance that line between being, you know, I don't want to say inappropriate with the players, but just maintaining that line of respect between getting to relate to them, but also at the same time keeping them reminded that, Look, I still am your coach, and we still do need to be productive in this environment. So you are primarily you, you are the catching coach. You you help in some other areas, but catching is sort of your your forte. It's it's really your strength. Um, I would say, as far as as just you know, where you were a catcher and, and you do a great job. You post a lot of things on social media. Uh, if anyone's listening to this and you don't follow Coach Breedison on uh, Twitter, you'll get you'll get a, a pretty good insight of what he does with catchers. Uh, I think you see a lot of really interesting things there. Um, I'd recommend looking him up if you if you haven't done so and just kind of see what he's got going there. But, but Nick, I'd like to just uh, kind of ask you in general, um, there's a lot of different things we could talk about catching-wise, but just to kind of start with, if, if there's one – one thing that you think Ohio University catchers do exceptionally well because it's something that you put a lot of emphasis on, what would that be? Uh, there are probably two avenues that I would go down here. The first one I would say is they they take pride in each other. And I mean that from the seniors all the way down to the freshmen that know that they're probably just here to catch bullpens, right? And that's something that 
was instilled in me um, being a young catcher here, having the older guys, and then me being an older catcher, having the younger guys come up, and it's just been a, a filtered system now of eight, nine, ten years of young guys coming up to be older guys and understanding that, look, at Ohio, as a catching staff, we take a lot of pride in what we do, and we're going to treat everybody as if they're the starter, both from my end and then from a player's perspective, too. Um, I know I personally took a lot of pride in that as a player. I've tried to instill that in our guys that we have there now, and they're doing an amazing job with it. Um, from a skill standpoint, I mean, we're my goal is to be the best receivers in the league. That's really where we're going to put the most emphasis and the most amount of time um, in a practice. Now, obviously, this is probably opens up an entire different can of worms. Um, blocking and throwing, yes, I would like to say that we're going to be the best in the league as well, but I think that's just an extension off of us being the best receivers. When you talk about being the best receivers, break that down for me another level. What does that mean for you? For, for an individual catcher, for an entire catching staff to be really good receivers. What, what does that mean? Give me some, give me some boxes you're going to have to check if you're going to be considered yes. really good receivers. Absolutely. So obviously, obviously you have to keep stripes, stripes, right? I mean, that's probably pretty obvious, but I think we need to say it. We need to keep strikes, strikes. And then from there, how many, I call them borderline pitches. How many borderline pitches are we either winning or losing? Uh, I, that the goal for us, and this was just kind of an arbitrary number that I threw out there, um, for 50% of borderline pitches in-game to be one for us. That was kind of the, what I expected to happen. Um, I think we ended up the season at about a 56% clip. Um, now, some of that, I would say most of it, is fairly subjective, right? That's me going through video after every game and we have a we have an app um, called Synergy that clips up all the, the pitches from each game and gives us a strike zone so I can work off that a little bit. Um, so there is some subject, subjectivity to that, absolutely. Um, but for me, like I said, i got to keep strike strikes. And then how many pitches can we win, essentially, on those borderline pitches? What is the strategy to win a borderline pitch? How, how do you win a borderline pitch? What's what are uh, I know things have changed in the last I don't know couple of years as far as what you're seeing in the major league game with a lot more, especially well especially this past season um, catchers seem to any ball that is from the borderline to like middle of the strike zone basically gets pulled back to the middle and from what I gather what I've read what I've heard is is that's basically done so that every pitch is essentially presented in the same spot and makes it a lot more difficult maybe for the umpire to recognize a ball and a strike but for you guys for your team for what works at the college level how do you win borderline pitches to put it uh, uh, simply I guess is the best way to say it move the ball Right, I think that we are in an era now, and like as you alluded to, that you're seeing it at the big leagues, but it absolutely works at the college level. Um, and now that's a completely different rabbit hole that we can dive down in terms of the mechanic of a catch. 
Um, but like I said, to put it simply, move the baseball, right? And I think that that's a, that's a debate that's going on right now in the amongst the catching community. Does moving the ball work? To me, we're past that. I think we're seeing it enough um, to know that it works. There's a guy. His name is Zach Stout. I don't know if you've seen him on Twitter, but he's way smarter than I will ever be. But he actually broke down um, why moving the baseball works. So essentially, what's going on is you think about it the same way as as a hitter perceives a baseball. He's going to pick up ball or strike roughly two-thirds of the way, and then his head has to move to adjust to where he thinks that the ball is going to be and initiate a swing, right? So an umpire is essentially the same thing, right? Unless they're, once we get robo-umps, but that's a different conversation. But the umpire's eyes are they're the same thing as the hitters, right? So they're making up their mind roughly two-thirds of the way of ball flight, and then their head is moving towards the plate so they can go off the final presentation of the glove, right? So... There's that last third of ball flight where we kind of call it the deception window um, to where if our glove and our pitch manipulation match up to where the umpire thinks that the ball is going to be or we do a good job presenting the pitch that we moved in that last third of ball flight, we can get away with some with some pretty gnarly glove movement and win some strikes that way. And you and that was something I know that the twenty twenty season was very shortened, but was that something that, that your catchers worked on and implemented in games in twenty twenty? Yes. Yeah, that was something that we we really dove into the fall of twenty nineteen. Um, and then by by the spring of twenty twenty our guys were kind of magicians back there and I say that fully credit to them. They they worked their butts off to to put themselves in a really good spot that way. To be a really elite, and I'm going to keep going down, hopefully a little bit, a little bit deeper into this. And just, yep. just try anybody that's really interested in this. Hopefully, we can break it down uh, for them and give them a pretty good visual in their mind. To be a really elite ball mover as you're as you're receiving the ball, to do it in a way that is going to potentially be able to deceive the umpire give me some give me some key points here give me some uh some check boxes that you things you want to do things you can't do you know things that if you do this it's going to make it's going to make it look really bad and and it's not going to help you it's probably going to hurt you sure so to start we need to be in an efficient position right or whatever stance we're going to be in back there whether it's some form of a one knee or a traditional or a secondary or wherever you want to call it Whatever stance we're in needs to be in a spot where we can leverage the baseball, right? And that's going to be different for every catcher. That's going to be different for every pitcher, potentially, um, depending on who's on the mound and who's behind the plate. Um, once we find a stance or, more realistically, several stances that work for us as catchers, then I think the next thing that we need to look at is what is our glove doing pre-pitch, right? I think a lot of guys get in trouble with their pre-pitch movement. Um, and what I mean by that is we need to do something with our glove to set us up to work back up through the baseball. So what we see a lot of times when guys struggle or when it looks when it looks bad when we're not getting calls is we have a 
either a two-part or a three-part move. So I'm, I'm walking around and I'm trying to go through this to make it make sense. Um, <laughs> so let's see, we have our glove in traditional target and it stays stagnant. And now the pitch is coming and now we have to go down to go back up, right? Or what we see sometimes is guys start with their glove on the ground. The pitch is thrown. Their glove comes back up just to go back down to work back up through the ball, right? So what is our glove doing? Um, is that setting us up for success in terms of an efficient path to the ball? Now, once we look at that, we need to look at the timing of everything, right? So if we're, if we're too early, it's going to look like a poor catch. If it's too late, it's going to look like a poor catch, right? So, and then, and then from there, you can really start to kind of fine tune, okay, why is my timing late? Do I, do I load my glove a little bit more to the right based on the pitches coming? Based on what pitch is coming? Do I load my glove a little bit more to the left based on what pitch is coming? Um, and I guess that's kind of the, the basic process of or check boxes that you said that I would start to go down. Um, but again, the, the finished product should look as if it's just one clean, fluid sweep back up through the ball. If it looks choppy or... Like I said, either a two-part or a three-part move, that's probably going to be an issue in terms of getting calls. And and I'm, you know, what I'm picturing in in my mind uh, when catchers start below the zone and and uh, and there's a ball that's thrown, you know, slightly above their glove, and basically they catch it in one fluid move on their way up toward the zone, sort of halfway halfway into their move, they're they're catching it and continue to kind of pull into the strike zone. That looks. When a catcher's good at that, that looks like the most natural thing in the world, um, and I can certainly see that stealing strikes. What about on the opposite end of the strike zone? So your glove starts below the zone, and you get a ball that's a border, a, a breaking ball that was left up hanging on the top part of the zone um, where you've got to move up to grab that ball and then pull it back down, or even or even side to side, You know, something that starts maybe in the upper half of the zone that's a little bit in or a little bit out that you've got to move um, in the, I guess, move one direction, catch the ball, and move it back the other direction. Uh, how, what do you? What's your conversation with, uh, like, with your players about that? Are those still pitches that you want to try to pull back into the zone? Do you not pull them as far? Is there is there something that you're, you talk about your catchers? Like, if you're going to pull that pitch in, you need to do this. Just, I'm just kind of curious about that. Those balls that are. I guess in the you have to go through almost through the strike zone outside of the strike zone to catch it and then kind of pull it back in just because of where you start and the location of the pitch. I hope that's making sense to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I guess I'll, I'll start by saying this: if it's a if it's a missed spot, there's only so much we can do, right? When I say missed spot, like almost every single pitch is a missed spot, right? Especially a even at the big league level, right? No one really throws it exactly where they want to every time. When I say a missed spot, I mean, you know, a pretty, it still might be a strike, but if we're set up on the outer half and he goes in or black right there, it's, it's, I don't really have any technical advice for that, right? It's, he missed his spot. Let's do the best that we can to A, catch it, right? I mean, we, we gotta, we gotta catch the ball. And then B, if our timing and if our path was efficient, we still probably can get some form of manipulation back on it. Um, but relative to, I'll use this as an example, um, say right on right, 
he goes right-handed slider. We're set up on the outer half. In order to um, kind of counterpart the way that we know that the pitch is going to move, we might glove load to our catcher's arm side, right? So it's going to kind of mirror the shape of that right-handed breaking ball, right? So that's going to set us up. Let's say he does yank it a little bit, right? Or we're set up middle, and he ends up missing outer half. But because of the way that our glove is loaded, we're kind of setting ourselves up for success, both on the idea that the pitch was executed, but also setting ourselves up for success on the chance that he might miss his spot to a certain extent, if that makes sense. And you can do the same thing, let's say right-handed changeup or left-handed break ball, right? You can now glove load slightly to your glove side to essentially accomplish the same thing. Do you have, do you ask your catchers to, when, when you're moving the ball, are you moving to the, I guess, uh, for lack of a better way to say it, to the thirds of the plate, or are you moving the ball to, every, you moving everything middle-middle? Like, are you moving a ball that is slightly outside the zone, back into the zone where it's clearly a strike, but it's still on the perimeter, or are you, you going everything middle-middle, no matter what location, what pitch? So, the cue that we use is is to the, to the midline of your body, right? So, and this is where you have to start, and this is something that we looked into a little bit or started to dive into more in depth um, this fall was how far are we willing to set up off the plate, right? If, if our goal is to get the pitch back over the middle of the plate, then in my opinion, I think we need to hold on to more of the plate relative to our setup, right? So um, it, the farther off that we get, I think pitch manipulation becomes a little bit of a moot point just because now we're so far off the dish that it doesn't matter how much we move the ball, we can move the ball a foot and a half and we're still not back on the plate, if that makes sense. It does. Have you, so I asked you if, if this was something that you did in the 2020 season and obviously it was a shortened season. Did you get any umpire feedback? Good or bad about what your catchers were doing because that's something that this whole this whole topic. I, I guess I'm watching it happen at the major league level, particularly, and thinking I'm assuming that these umpires are getting graded like every game. They're kind of sat down and and, and they 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 are talked to or 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 at least given some sort of a uh, an evaluation or oh, whatever, just game to game how well they did behind the plate, um, right. and how many pitches they missed and didn't. And I'm assuming that. There'll be umpires that will get fooled by by better catchers in the league, and I guess in my, in my mind I'm thinking like that umpire is going to get pissed off at that catcher for making him look bad and making him do a bad job at his at his job. And is he maybe going to carry that into the next time he sees that catcher? He's going to remember that, I guess, and, and and not be so willing to call strikes. Did you get any feedback from umpires this past year? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So. I tried to pick the, the brains of as, as many umpires as I could. Um, and I'll say this. The, the times that umpires had an issue with what we were doing, it was when we were doing a bad job, right? It, it, it's when our timing or our path weren't efficient, so it did make it look bad, right? Because that, that's, that's why this works. Right? If we're doing a good job at it, umpires can't really see it. 
right? And, and another thing I'll, I'll kind of piggyback off this thought, going back to your question before this, in terms of consistency of our catch, right? So even if it's, if we're going to move the ball, we have to consistently move the ball, regardless if it's a strike, in my opinion. So what I mean by that is, again, kind of work with me here as I walk around and, and talk with my hands a lot right now. But so let's say we're set up, we're set up outer half. Yeah, screw it. We're set up right down the middle, right? Let's say we get a right-handed breaking ball that ends up outer half of the plate. Now, if we catch and stick that pitch, it's on the plate. We're probably going to get it called for a strike, regardless of regardless of, of, it, of if we move the ball or not, right? Now, let's say next pitch or two pitches later or four batters later, we get same pitch type, same pitch shape, but now instead of being on the outer half, it's half a ball off. Now, because we have set up that pitch beforehand where we showed glove movement, even though it was a strike, now we essentially show the same glove movement and our glove ends up at the same spot, but that pitch was half a ball off, right? So we're setting up our our moves on bigger pitches because we're consistently moving the ball. If we were to only move the ball on borderline spots, the umpire might necessarily know what's going on, but he's going to go, that looks different. I don't like it. I'm not going to call that pitch. Interesting concept. How far off will you move? Like if, a, I mean, I guess if it, if, does it, is it, is it when the ball gets too far outside of the catcher's midline that it's just, it's obviously not a strike? Is like, is that, is that sort of where you, where you tell catcher, hey, you know, don't, don't pull that one. That was too far outside of your midline. It's going to be an obvious. Gonna, yeah. Our guys are going to move it until they get told that's too much. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I think it's, it sounds ridiculous. And obviously, I know, like you said, last year was a super small sample size. And this wasn't just us. I mean, I think this is just college umpires in general, but you can get away with a lot. So we're going to do as much as we can to get away with as much as we can to be told to turn it down as opposed to not doing enough and having to ramp it up as the game goes on. I saw something you tweeted, Nick, a while back. Uh, You were umpiring... I, I did go through your Twitter account quite a bit and, and learn some interesting things. So I'm going to bring a couple of these things up if you don't mind. But but you were umpiring uh, fall inter squad games, and I the, my assumption was that you were actually behind the plate as opposed to a, a lot of inter squad games coaches go behind the mound. But it seemed like you were behind the plate uh, yes. because you talked about how your catchers can do different things to influence the umpire in, in either a positive or negative direction all the way from like how early they get set up to what sort of a lane you're giving the umpire etc um what did you learn from that experience and, and i guess how how will that affect some of the conversations you have with your catchers in the future because obviously you you want well i, I would assume that you want your catchers to establish a good rapport with the umpire so that hopefully you will get some more borderline calls and, and you don't unnecessarily want to be quote-unquote friends with the umpire but you like to have a good working relationship between between umpire and catcher. So what did you learn from that experience of being um, umpiring behind the plate, and then how will that affect some of the conversations you'll have with your catchers in the future? Sure. Well, two things. The Just to touch on the catcher-umpire relationship, because, yes, for since the, the game has begun, right, that's been, the, that's been the deal. The catcher and the umpire need to be best friends because we want the umpire to give us calls, right? But I think... Uh, it, the, the 
relationship is is kind of taking an interesting turn, in my opinion, just because, like I said, this is the kind of the era of deception, right? So if we're doing a really good job, we're making the umpire look really, really bad, right? So, <laughs> so, so how do you balance being his buddy and earning his respect? Because I do think that's important, but also knowing, like, look, man, I'm trying to make you look like the worst umpire in the league right now. Like, I know if, if I'm doing my job correctly, you suck, right? Like, <laughs> to put it bluntly. So I, to me, and I don't have an answer to that. It's more so just uh, a thought that I've been having of, actually, I think a, Tanner Swanson put that out. I heard him say that a while ago. And ever since he said that, I was like, damn, like, that makes a lot of sense. Like, it, it's, it's just an interesting spot, um, that relationship piece. But to answer your other question, so... And some of the tweets that I put out, I've, and I guess I'll preface it with this: I've never umpired. First of all, as a catching coach, that's one of the best things I've ever done: is put on the gear and just get back there and and just see see what's going on from that perspective, because that's really the perspective that matters. Um, but also, you can just be in the catcher's ear the whole game, right? So, whether you're talking about small in-game communication or Sure, you can talk about the mechanics of a catch or the mechanics of a block, but you can also just really get a good feeling of where their brain's at in-game and try and do a better job of understanding how they work in-game just so you can relate to them better um, in the season when you're in the dugout. But the things that – and you asked, what did I learn? If anything, it just made me question more and more. Um, <laughs> the, the debate that I've been going back and forth with – and. I don't know how much validity there is to it at all. Um, but, you know, for, for years and years and years, we've been taught to make the umpire feel as comfortable as possible, right? Like, give him the most vision, you know, give him the, the, the biggest visual lane that we can. Um, let him get set. Give him time. Obviously, we have to do our part to not tip pitches, right? There's that fine line there that we have to battle with. Um but for me, there there were, and again, like I said, I have zero training at this whatsoever. So this could 100% just me just being just a bad umpire, right? Um, and not knowing what to do back there. But like I said, so, and, and, and like I said here, or bear with me here as I kind of talk through this. So if a catcher gets that soon enough, obviously, like I said, we have to balance that, that timeline of not tipping pitches. But if a catcher gets soon enough to where, the umpire can get set in his spot, in his slot or his lane, and we give him a good visual as opposed to getting set up later to where the umpire might be a bit rushed to get there, to his spot. Is that advantageous or disadvantageous to us? Right. So if he's rushed and his head's moving and his eyes are moving, can we get away with more ball movement? Because by the time he finally gets settled, our glove has stopped moving, but we moved it eight inches. But he didn't necessarily see that because he was still trying to get in his spot, right? Now, obviously, the other argument to that is he goes, well, I wasn't ready to call it, so I'm not going to call it, right? So, like I said, I don't know if there's any validity to that thought or that argument at all, but it was just something that, when I was back there, I personally was was battling with and thinking about because there absolutely were calls where our guy set up late. 
I had trouble moving through space back there. Finally got to my spot, was rushed, and all of a sudden I'm put in a decision to make a call, right? You don't have the luxury of going back and looking at it on video. You have to make a call right then and there, right? So I immediately looked at the information that I had right in front of me, and his glove was over the plate. I called it a strike. I asked our catcher immediately. I was like, hey, man, what do you have on that? He goes, dude, that wasn't even close. And, like, Shoot. Like, and again, that could just be me being a horrible, horrible umpire. But I, and I also think that probably some of this is umpire specific, right? So it might work on some guys. It might not work on some guys. Some guys get in different spots. Some guys are higher, right? The taller guys can get more of a bird's eye view. That's where the shorter guys, like myself, really have to get down and low. How does that change the way that we move the ball and set up and provide space for him back there, right? Um, there are so many things that I was back there, and I'm just like, God. I don't know any of the answers to these questions. I don't think that there's ever really a way to find a definitive answer, but I think there is something to this piece of either, like I said, helping the umpire get into a good spot or kind of challenging his timing um, to potentially get away with more pitch manipulation on borderline pitches. Really interesting stuff. I'll be, I'd be anxious to talk to you you know, six months from now, and uh, and kind of see how the season went and what you think, and if you have any thoughts after after doing that. But I mean, both of those things make perfect sense, I, I guess. If you give an umpire a chance, a chance to plenty of time to get where he wants to get, um, as opposed to making him rush, I don't, I don't know. It's interesting, a really interesting yeah. uh, concept. Now, you guys, you like your catchers. Primarily to receive on one knee, which is another thing I'm interested in. Another thing that sort of uh, in the last couple of years has has really become much more popular with catchers at yep. the pro level, and that always trickles down. Um, and I th- I'm sure that happened at the major league level because over the last however many years, base runners are not trying to steal bases, so there's less emphasis on on blocking and throwing guys out. So that really probably allowed catchers to focus more on receiving. But at the college level, I don't know that's still the case. I don't know that's the case as, as far as um, there there aren't teams aren't stealing bases. I, I still think in college you probably have roughly as many stolen bases as you did 10 to 20 years ago. Uh, but, but obviously the one knee receiving has trickled into the college game, uh, and it's something that you your catchers primarily do. I'm 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 assuming that when you got to college, that was not the case. So I'm interested to talk to you about this because uh, you you probably did something different as a catcher than what you're teaching right now, and I'm interested to hear sort of the, the dichotomy in your mind as far as what the benefits are to receiving on one knee and if there are any drawbacks to it. And just just sort of curious as, as to why you landed on what you did as far as your catching uh, your your coaching philosophies for catchers go. Sure. So. Yes, I will say that all of our guys catch virtually 100% of the pitches on some form of a knee-down system, right? Now, that's not something that I mandate um, for us. All I care about is us finding 
our most optimal receiving position or positions, which with all of our guys, they have multiple, and then learning how to block and or either throw out of those spots, right? As opposed to, which has kind of been the narrative in the past, is let's learn how to receive out of our best block and throw stance, right? And I think that thought is a little bit backwards when you look at what receiving can really do in terms of changing a game, right? So in terms of the our, our, our knee down system, um, I think, and, and you referred to one knee receiving, I think you would be surprised, and I'm still surprised, with how much better our guys are at blocking and at throwing out of that position, right, out of some form of a knee down, right? And I think that there are several reasons for that. Um, I think one of the, when it, when it comes to the catch block decision, I think, A, your eyes are lower. You could get underneath the baseball with your vision. But B, you can hold on to that, to that decision process or you can hold on to that catch first mentality just a little bit longer because you're already grounded. Right, and I think uh, another big misconception is, or I don't say misconception, but one of the the knocks on uh, the one knee system, and, and especially with blocking, is your ability to cover lateral range. Um, and from everything that I've seen with our guys, guys that I've seen in the big leagues or other colleges, or guys that I've talked to. A, I think the majority of pitches, and I don't have numbers on this for our guys, but just in talking with people amongst the catching community, about 80% of the pitches that we block are going to be roughly within our body width, right? So about, or within the plate, right? So those, A, the really, really good block, what makes them really good blockers, or really efficient blockers, are their ability to block 100% 100% out of that 80% that's essentially right at us, give or take a little bit right or left, if that makes sense. Now those 20% that, you know, those 20% outliers, um, the right-handed slider that he yanks in the left-handed batter's box, I would argue that we have just as good of a chance getting some form of glove or some form of body on that from a knee down system as we would from a big traditional secondary stance, right? So I'm moving on to the throwing piece. And this is something that we've dove into last year, but just myself and and, in, in talks with mainly our, our guys, um, figuring out different adjustments in that knee down system to, work for each guy, right? Um, I would say that no one is necessarily a faster thrower. I would say all of our guys, in terms of, I guess, in terms of velocity, I think some guys might lose a click of velocity. Some, not all. Um, All of our guys' releases got faster, and the accuracy wasn't even close from a knee down 
I think the movement is just more simple. Like I said, you can hold on to your spot just a little bit longer so you're making a correct and an efficient decision when you know you have to go throw. And then the movements are, to me, like I said, it's it's just more simplified from that position just because you have more, you're into the ground more, you're more connected that way, so you can use that to your advantage and get yourself in a good, strong spot um, because you're, like I said, in a, some kind of knee down. And that, that looks all different shapes, sizes, and colors, depending on who you're talking to and who's back there and who's on the mound and what base we're throwing to. But I'm not even really sure what the question was. I just kind of started rambling. <laughs> um, no, you nailed it. I think you got it in okay. all parts of it. Um, I'm, I'm, it's, I, I'm sort of shocked, actually, that, that release times got better and that accuracy got better. Those are not things that I would have expected. I, I would have just expected in general that that pop times got a little bit worse. Uh, because like you said, I, I, I would have assumed that a, a little bit less velocity, but I would not have assumed much of a change in the other two. Or maybe even I thought potentially a little bit of a slower release. So that's, that's shocking to me. I think the reason for the release is when you get guys in a big you know, the, what you think of to be a big traditional secondary stance, right? Um, their butts up, their feet are spread. Sure, they're balanced east and west, but north and south, I mean, you can go tip them over and they'll fall either way, right? So when they see that runner take off, their glove goes forward, right? Because their body is naturally going forward. So now they get super extended. And now they have to come all the way back to their hand, and now get rid of the baseball. When you're in it, when you're more grounded with the knee down, I think you, I think guys are more inclined to let the ball travel just a little bit longer, and therefore get it to their hand a little bit faster, and therefore get it to the air a little bit faster. I think that's why the release sees uh, a, a decrease in time from throwing from a knee. With the blocking thing. Uh, Nick, as we we get into our last few minutes here before we wrap things up, um, yep. do you? So, if you've got a right-handed pitcher on the mound, you you would assume that most blocks, particularly on off-speed pitches, are going to either be if if the guy misses by a lot, if he misses outside of the catcher's body, it's probably going to be to the pitcher's glove side, right? He's probably either going to yank his fastball or. Or potentially yank a breaking ball that has a little bit of a little bit of tilt to it instead of a, a you know an actual twelve six more like a uh, an eleven to five type breaking ball. Um, yeah. Do you, for that reason, have catchers with with their right knee down and left knee still uh, left foot still on the ground, thinking that maybe if the ball is yanked to the pitcher's glove side, that having the right knee down, left foot in contact with the ground, that maybe they can still scoot out there a little bit and, and gain a little ground laterally or is that not something that, that am I totally off base with that thought? No, you're 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 one hundred percent accurate and you're one hundred percent off base. And what I mean by that is <laughs> I have guys that do exactly what you just said and I have guys and I've seen guys that do the exact opposite of what you just said because it's what they work it's what works for them. Okay. Right? I think when we started this it was pretty black and white. It was when we have a Right-handed hitter, we're going to be left knee down with nobody on because the left knee, if you think about where the umpire stands, he's going to be over our left shoulder. 
So that's going to take out the reference point of the bottom of the zone for him, right? And vice versa with the left-handed hitter. We're going to be right knee down because of where the umpire is standing. And then when, once guys got on base, you read the situation and go, okay, is this a received block or a received throw situation? So now the handedness of the hitter kind of gets thrown out the window, and that's when it gets a little bit more catcher-specific in terms of what works for them, right? So we could have right-handed hitter, big run guy at first, 1-1 one, one count. We expect him to go. So one of our guys might be um, right knee down, back toe in the ground. That's his received throw stance. Other guys might be left knee down with our right leg kicked out, right? Um, or we go second, third, one out. Obviously, there's no run situation, so we're going to look at it and go, okay, this is a receive block situation. So I'm going to find my most optimal stance to receive first, but then also block. And that could change, like I said, based on catcher, based on pitcher. Um, you obviously have to be careful that you aren't tipping pitches. Um, but now, kind of as... I myself have, have evolved and our, our guys have evolved through this. I really just let them do whatever they want based on the fact that I want them to win that pitch and, and, and do whatever they have to do to win that pitch. Right. So a lot of our guys still will go left knee down with the right handed hitter and right knee down with the left handed hitter, um, with nobody on, but we've evolved a little bit more than that. We've found a lot more, I guess I would say, nuances or adjustments in each guy's position so they can do what's best to effectively execute and win that pitch. I saw something else that you posted on Twitter, and I believe it was from your fall season, just with some, some statistics <clears throat> that I think Synergy helped you out with. Um, and, and these numbers were surprising to me, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on them. But I saw that uh, your team, your catchers, blocked 93% of dirt balls successfully, which I've never seen, I guess, what statistics look like in a, in a normal season or what they looked like 10 years ago. But that seems like a really good number to me. I saw the, uh, the statistic that runners caught stealing at 29%. That's a good clip. Um, yeah. You know, anything over really twenty or twenty-five percent is an excellent number. Now, maybe maybe you guys are just really slow, <laughs> but yeah. but that seems like a good number. Um, it's one of those things. I guess when you're playing yourself in the fall and your your pitchers have an awesome fall, it's like okay, are our pitchers really good or do our hitters really suck? Type of situation. Right. But then and then one more stat is just uh, and this one you said is a little bit maybe subjective, um, but that you got your your catchers got fifty five percent of borderline pitches called strikes. Again, that's Probably not a lot of uh, of of what quote unquote professional umpires calling those pitches, but regardless, they got about fifty five percent of pitches called strikes. Um, is there any of those any of those stats you want to talk about? Because all honestly, all those Nick is when you when you consider that your catchers are on one knee for the the majority of all pitches received, that ninety three percent blocked ball uh, success rate, twenty nine percent caught stealing, and fifty five percent borderline pitches called a strike. Those are really good numbers. So those numbers were from last spring, so obviously it was a shortened season. So 
you know, I, we could we're, we're gonna we're gonna stick with this. I, I, I think it's our a our guys really like it. To me, that's the most important part, right? That's where they're comfortable. That's where they feel effective. Um, but but personally, I, I think it works, and so we're gonna stick with it, right? Now we could look up in the at the end of hopefully what is gonna be fifty six games this spring and we're blocking at a 65% clip we've thrown out 8% of runners now we might be really good receivers still right but and then that's where we look at it and go well maybe last season wasn't a an adequate tell of what this really is do I think that's going to happen no I don't right but I think I do need to preface that with that it was only 17 games or whatever it ended up being but yes, I, I, I was very pleased with how our guys did. Um, in terms of how I got those numbers, obviously caught stealing is pretty self-explanatory. Um, the blocking, what I considered to be a a successful block, was obviously with runners on, they didn't advance, um, and then with nobody on, as long as it didn't hit the umpire. I can, unless obviously it was an egregious like 51 foot fastball that we had absolutely zero chance on. But as long as we got enough piece of glove or piece of body with nobody on, the umpire didn't wear it. I considered that a block opportunity. And if we successfully kept it off the umpire, then we successfully um, completed the block. If we didn't, then that went against us. So that's kind of how I came um, came to that blocking number. It's very good numbers all around, especially I, I thought they were fall numbers, but with those being spring, even if it was only 17 games, like all three of those numbers are, are really good. And, and I think for anybody that's out there listening to this, if you've listened to this whole podcast, if you listen to the what you know how Coach Breedison coaches catchers, things they do, things they focus on, and you're not convinced that one knee that one knee the one knee stance, one knee receiving stance is something that you at least need to experiment with if you haven't done it yet. Or if you have experimented, maybe it's something you need to put a little more time and effort into. I, I think that you know you're 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 really missing something here. You know, for me as a, as a college coach, I coached catchers at a couple of my stops. Um, we you know rarely rarely would a guy go down to one knee, and if he did, it was just sort of a that was sort of an outlier. But like hearing these things, I think boy, if I got a chance to go back and, and coach at any level right now, I think that. You know, one, the one knee receiving is certainly. It seems like there's a lot of advantages to it, and and, there, and really, if there's not a disadvantage, like if 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 you're still throwing guys out at a 29 percent clip, you know, for runners caught stealing, that's probably the biggest knock on one knee receiving. Well, well, one of the two. A, you're not in a position to block, but clearly your numbers show that your guys did a good job with it, and and B, you're not in a position to be able to throw guys out. Again, clearly your catchers did a good job with it. I, I just I don't know what the argument would be against it at this point. Yeah, and that's where. Obviously, when you when you look at the uh, the major leagues, they have more access to um, pretty in depth analytics and in terms of defensive runs saved. And so we're kind of working off that model a little bit. Um, so I don't want to say even if we do a even if we do a poor job of throwing out runners because I get it. The value of ninety feet at the college level is much much different than the value of ninety feet at the big league level. I think the value of a stolen base is much higher at the college level just because the frequency of a free base is much more uh, or much greater. But when you look at it, if, if we're going to be the, and again, I'm going to relate it back to the, to the big leagues and just because they have those clear cut numbers. 
if we save 30 runs receiving, we save three runs blocking, and we lose two runs from throwing. I'm not that good at math, but I'm pretty sure in total that's 27 runs saved, and that makes you top two in terms of overall defensive runs saved in baseball. Right Now, like I said, I get it. It's different at the college level. And I'm not saying that I don't value throwing. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is receiving really, really, really makes or breaks what you do and the impact that you have behind the plate just because of the frequency and then what you can do from a count-changing standpoint and then your ability to change at bats throughout a game, I think, has more impact than you throwing out, you know, 50% of runners or whatever it is. This is awesome. It's been really great stuff. This is Nick Breedison, everybody. He's an assistant coach at Ohio University, and I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've learned a lot from you uh, just on the catching side of things and just enjoyed the conversation overall. So, Nick, I want to thank you for your time today, and I just appreciate you, uh, all the information you shared and, and the time you gave us on the podcast. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a